Sure. A new sermon series this week where for the next several weeks we are going to be considering different episodes in the Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you're not that familiar with the Bible. These accounts where Jesus' life and his ministry during his time on earth was relayed for us. And the title of this sermon is called, did, or this series is called, Did Jesus Really Say? And of course, I'm hoping that to have a little bit of the echo of the serpent that Pepo just read about in the early pages of Genesis, because it is the refrain that comes out of so many mouths in so many ways. It whispers in our ears in various iterations. When we start to wonder, can God really be trusted? The serpent said to Eve, did God really say he just had to start eroding confidence in God's word for the whole universe to get decimated? Boom. The spirit's moving. Be ready. (laughs) Get your hands up. Do you understand that? That's all the serpent had to do is he just had to plant a little insinuation. God might be holding back on you. Did he really say that? Have you, maybe you've misinterpreted him. Well, so we're going to look. We're going to look at some of the things that Jesus said because I hear people all the time. Heard Jimmy Carter this week in an article say, I think Jesus would have fully sanctioned gay marriage because he never speaks about this explicitly in any place. Jimmy Carter's a devout man. He's making an assumption. What would Jesus say? I heard this week, I read this week, a a lady who had written an article, an article of which she seemed really proud. And it was posted at Huffington Post, which is, as I understand, a very reputable outfit, where if you read its articles, you will do nothing but excel in intelligence and understanding the things of the universe. But I read this article and I was a little bit incredulous, which means I couldn't believe it. This enlightened woman who was chiding us, she was a fellow believer, and she was chiding all the other believers who would be so bigoted and mean as to, not to hate gay people, but to dislike and to be opposed to the marriage redefinition that has happened by the scotus and celebrated by the potus and the flotus. I'm sorry. So many acrostics, huh? But she was proud and she was certain and she was derisive. And she made this argument, which made me think about what Jesus is up to here when he is talking on this Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is saying, here's what you've heard. Here's what you've heard. This is this was the language that was going on in the day. Who's my neighbor? Who should I really love? The common wisdom among religious people, people devoted to Yahweh, to the true living God, or that we're of course supposed to love our neighbor, but we've got to figure out who is our neighbor. That's why the young 
lawyer, he's not young, we don't know how old he was, the lawyer asked Jesus in that thing we know as the Good Samaritan, he says, and who is my neighbor? This was a question that was working around on the streets. Hashtag, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus is saying, here's what you've heard. But here's what I say. And this woman was just repeating. This woman in Huffington Post who was teaching us all. She was saying what she had heard. And she had great confidence from what she had heard. Because she was in a moment of majority status. And so it felt good to be confident. She was the enlightened one. She was chiding all of us for our inconsistencies and our hypocrisies as Christians. And she said this really astounding thing, which I know you've heard somewhere before. You Christians who oppose gay marriage, which always comes out as you're anti-gay. You anti-gays, she said. Do you eat shrimp? That's what she, she honestly said that. Do you eat shrimp? Because clearly the Bible says that you shouldn't eat shrimp. And so if you eat shrimp, how can you say anything about sexuality? Now, have you heard anybody say something like that? Maybe it wasn't shrimp. Maybe it was pork. Maybe someone said something about the fact that you were wearing polyester and rayon mixed claws together. And the Bible clearly says you shouldn't mix those two fabrics. If you're wearing a leisure suit, it must be cotton, all cotton or all wool. It cannot be polyester at all. But you've heard people say that kind of stuff. How can you say the Bible has anything to say about this when the Bible has a lot to say about our sexuality and the use of our bodies? The whole tenor of the Bible has a lot to say about our creation, about what marriage is, about how we're to express ourselves, about the body belonging to the Lord in the Old Testament and the New. But people say these things. They've never read the Bible. And they say, you eat shrimp? And first of all, like some Christians don't eat, don't eat uh, seafood. I don't eat much seafood. Jim Gaffigan doesn't eat seafood. He said if you... Because the lobster is like a giant bug crawling on the bottom of the ocean. He said if you found a lobster in your house, you came home, and you found a lobster in your house, you wouldn't call the exterminator, you would move. It would be so frightening to see such a creature in your house. Why on earth would you eat it? And he says that uh, clams and oysters are nothing but snots and rock. <laughs> Hey, he said it. But no, I'm getting to a point, probably. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you, this woman was merely repeating, and we do this kind of thing all the time, and we're now in a moment where there's a great deal of sharing of ideas. Not knowledge, but ideas. The interwebs are good at sharing ideas, not knowledge. Ideas can get exchanged very quickly, very rapidly. You can be inundated with ideas and arguments can get spread very quickly. And so her argument was, we can't listen to the Bible about anything it says about this because we would just be being hypocritical if we eat seafood because clearly the Bible says don't eat seafood. But of course that is such a simpleton reading of the Bible that no Christians do. They shouldn't. And if you do that, listen up. You know, if she had asked somebody before she chided everyone... Like most Christians for 2,000 years have recognized, and maybe like the author of Hebrews recognized, and maybe like the Gospels recognized. Jesus says this. Jesus in one place is talking about food. Dietary laws. 
The ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. And they're asking, why do you guys come and eat and drink? You eat unclean foods. And Jesus says, listen, listen, listen. It isn't what you eat that makes you unclean. What you eat doesn't have any effect on your heart whatsoever. It goes in your stomach and it goes out your body. First century people realize this as well. He said, it's the stuff that comes out of your heart that makes you unclean. Like sexual immorality, like greed, like lust, like anger, like contempt. The stuff that's in you, the evil stuff, that's what makes you unclean. It comes out of you. And then there's this remark that Mark makes. He says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So you see, there and like books like the book of Hebrews have always recognized that the Old Testament in so many ways was preparatory. There are all these ceremonial laws. There are all these things that people were supposed to do because God wanted them to know that he was really holy. He was majestic. And you had to be sinless to come into his presence. So he gave them all these practices to train them about sacrifice. Don't come into God's hand, presence empty-handed. There has to be blood to get sins taken care of. You're going to be my special people. And all Christians, I think so many Christians for so long, like 1,999 years more than one year, have believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of these ceremonial laws. That's why we don't, that's why we say it's okay to eat some shrimp. And if you must eat a lobster, go ahead, even if you need a hammer. It's weird that you'd need a hammer to eat food. That's Jim Gaffigan as well. You're welcome. And these, there are certain civil laws that in the, in the Old Testament, Israel was a nation state. It was a theocracy. God was their king. He was their governor. And he wanted them in a very physical presence to embody his ways on the earth as a light to the nations. And so sins were punished by civil law. But now... Jesus has made it clear, and the church has always understood, that now we are not a theocracy. Now, the church of Jesus Christ, which is the replacement of Israel, the fulfillment of Israel, is multinational. The church thrives in democracies and totalitarian regimes under monarchies, meritocracies and plutarchies, and I don't know what. Name a kind of government, and that's where the Christian church is. It's not a civil thing. And so we don't have civil penalties for our sins anymore. Christians have always believed this. What we believe is, therefore, these civil matters and these ceremonial matters, that Jesus has fulfilled these. But the moral things, the moral things, well, this has to do with the very character of who God is. The very fabric of the universe. So we never put those aside. We didn't say, the Ten Commandments don't matter anymore. Because Jesus says they still matter. Because Jesus was the Ten Commandments come off the page. The embodiment of the law. If you looked at someone who loved God with all his heart and loved his neighbor as himself, you thought, what would that look like if ever a human did it? Where could we find that? Jesus would be it. Now, I'm just giving you this little lesson. One, because I hope it will be helpful to you. I'll, I'll send an article to you, too, if you ask me. But... Because this is important. We hear lots of things, but what did Jesus really say? And that's what we're going to be looking at. Jesus says, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. 
And at the end of his teaching, you know the people who were there at this sermon, at the end of Matthew chapter 7, when the Sermon on the Mount ends, it says the people were astonished at his teaching because he taught them, not as their teachers, but with authority. And see, that's where we are right now. We have a crisis of authority. Do you know this? We have an authority crisis. The democratization, look at these fancy words, the democratization of knowledge which says, basically, what everybody thinks is just as good as what everybody else thinks. I think that's dumb. Do you get the irony of that? But it doesn't matter because you can think it's smart and it all, weighs itself, it all balances out. But you feel this authority issue, don't you? When it comes to whether you listen to your pediatrician or not, Because your pediatrician might be wrong when it comes to immunizing your kids or giving them antibiotics, when it comes to knowing which kind of food you should feed your kids, when it comes to whether you should get whole life or term life, when it comes to knowing what you do financially. You feel it in grocery stores and in doctor offices. The crisis of authority. Who do I believe? Jesus makes a bold claim. He says, if you'll believe me, your life will become indestructible. In the sense that it can withstand any number of detrimental forces. If you ignore me, your life will be very crumbly. You will flit back and forth. And some of you know this because you are ruled by internal voices. You're ruled by all kinds of things. Uh, Pete Scazzaro says, we may have Jesus in our hearts, but we got grandpa in our bones. You know what he means by that? He means that so many of us are not that affected by what Jesus has said, so much as we're affected by our families that we grew up in. Our families have taught us the rules. Our families have taught us how we think about other people and money and how we're to act toward each other and what you do if you get wronged. And the Bible is out to say, listen, you've heard it said. You might have been taught that it was said. But I say to you, I'm the authority worth listening to. Tim Keller said, if the God you worship is not able to say things that make you uncomfortable sometime, you're probably worshiping a God of your imagination. If the God that you worship isn't able to say things to your life that counter you or make you uncomfortable or make you say, well, that's not what my mama said. That's not what Didi taught me. That's not what my grandpa used to do. If he can't say things like that to you, then it's probably that you are worshiping an imaginary God. Hartley, I love it when you're here, man. Thank you. You're allowed to say things. It's nice to preach when people look alive or sound alive. And I know it's hot. So do you know how much energy he expended to do that because it's so hot? It's like a CrossFit workout. Here, you want a water? Thank you, Dr. Hartley. Many people will say, the God I worship, the God I worship could never say this or that. I could never worship a God who says this. And that's cute, but it's just not thoughtful. Like, if you get to decide what God is, and (laughs) history of Christian theology says that's what people have been doing, we have these God creators in our very selves. Calvin says the heart is an idol-making factory, a God-making factory. People are always, as one person said, God made us in his image and we've been returning the favor ever since. We're always making gods up. 
the way we want them to be. And a good, clear test for whether you're worshiping the true God is, can he counter you? Can he stop you in your tracks? Can he say, you know, you're wrong about this? Or can he even say, you know what? The condemnation you hear, you're wrong about that. Can he overcome your negative voices? Can he... Can he direct you? That's what this sermon series is about. Did Jesus really say? And I just realized this clock is not working. No! <laughs> Was that jelly that did that? But so it makes it very hard to know how long I've been going. When I got here, I knew what time it said. And now it still says that same amount of time. So as far as I'm concerned, I've only just started. But I do have a... Okay, I have a watch now. Good. That is way off. Well, it's actually right now for a minute, but, but an hour off. Okay. Thank you, Matt, for the constant encouragement. <laughs> Feels good. So, when Jesus gets into this issue, we've been talking, we've talked about authority for a minute. These are asides to set us up for this sermon series. Did Jesus really say? We're trying to see, we're trying to be people who who submit ourselves to the authority of Jesus because we believe there's life there. He doesn't tell us things to kill us. He tells us things to move us along in a lifeward pattern. And he gives us an aspiration today. And I titled this sermon Perfectionism because at the end of it, he tells us, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And there's a lot of us in here who strive for a kind of perfection, I think. And we have, it's been much talked about. We strive for perfection. Some of you in here struggle with perfectionism. Sometimes we use it as kind of a humble brag. Brene Brown says, you know, we say, I'm such a perfectionist, which is to say, I do everything really well. And we do that. I used to be quite a perfectionist, but I couldn't do it perfectly, so I stopped. Way homers. Some of these are way homers. But you know what Brene Brown also says about perfection? I think it's really interesting because there's something in us that wants to, if we can just look really good or make our lives really good or be really good at what we do, it feels good. Like we're striving towards excellence. That feels good. You could even baptize it. Everything excellent for the glory of God. And you might even say it like that, God. But she says a lot of perfectionism that we endure is us carrying around a 20-pound shield, a large shield. And that shield, we think if we can just be good enough, if we can just make our lives look pretty enough, we can shield ourselves from any kind of blame, any kind of ridicule, any kind of criticism. No one can ever have the goods on us if we can just keep coming through. That's why so many moms need mommy juice at the end of the day. I'm not talking about Kool-Aid. Because it's so overwhelming to do that all the time. It's so overwhelming to feel like you have to be on all the time. And you have to come through. And your cupcakes at the children's birthday party have to be better than the last children's birthday party where they made those chess bars. (laughs) And you have to give a better presentation at the meeting than the glass guy who gave a presentation at the meeting. There is so much that you can't drop. There's so much you can't let go It's a struggle for perfectionism, which is really a big shield. It's living defensively, but you don't even realize it. It's saying, please, no one condemn me. Please, no one criticize me. Please, no one blame me for anything. Please, no one ridicule me for anything. It's a very huddled position. 
But Jesus calls us to a different kind of perfectionism altogether. It's a mature reflection of who he is. And it's not huddled up behind a shield. It's open-armed and wide-hearted. It's arms open wide and the big-heartedness. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven who lets two gay people getting married have sunshine on their wedding just like he did on yours. Who lets a child molester have rain come down to water the begonias in his yard in the same way that he lets Mother Teresa have water for her well. Your God, your Father, the one you call Father, as is evident every place you look, is indiscriminate. He's not discriminatory, he's indiscriminatory. Which is to say, he will just let it sunshine on everybody. People who wake up in the morning and who won't think of them all day will get to enjoy lovely days with the top down. And if they have hair, flowing hair. He'll let people have rain and food and joy and laughter and friendships. People who will never even think of him. Who will malign him. Who will walk around with an extended middle finger to him. And he says, if you want to be mature, if you want to be perfect, here's your aspiration. Your aspiration can't be to be better than everybody else so that no one gets on to you. Your aspiration has to be God has decided not to condemn you, but to drench you in mercy. So you, you make it your aspiration to love people who will never, ever love you back. And don't think you've achieved any kind of excellence or perfection in your life until you get to there. That's your goal. That's an end goal for you. That's something you should be teaching your children. How do you love somebody that's way different than you, that may hate you, that may not invite you back to the party if you invite them to a party, who may not give you a reciprocal gift if you give them a gift? How do you love somebody who hates you? Jesus says this is the way of maturity. When he says be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, many commentators have said, Dale Bruner, for instance, says this is what Josephus, the Jewish historian around Jesus' time, he uses the same word for perfect as as someone coming of age, moving into maturity, coming from a child to a grown-up. He's saying if you've come of age as one of God's kids, you'll start to reflect something of his character in the world. You'll be open-armed and huge-hearted like God is towards the world. And so how do you do this? How do you love your enemies? How do you do it? Two things. One, you have to think about God. If you're going to love your enemies, you've got to think about God. Now, I know we're at church, and so that sounds like you could probably say that in every sermon. Think about God. And yet you probably get some good mileage out of that. But if you're going to love your enemies, if you're going to love somebody who is 
who, who makes you cringe. You're like Newman, I loathe Jerry. If you're going to love somebody like that who, who makes your skin crawl, who actually hopes that something bad will happen to you, who's been mean to you, who has not come through for you, you have to do something that goes against your impulse. Your impulse is going to want to be to avoid them or to hit them in the eye, to pray that God will let a piano fall on them when they're walking downtown from a third-story window. Your impulse is going to want to hurt them back. If you don't believe that, just watch what happens in your family. Do you ever get hurt in a relationship with a friend or a spouse or a parent? And they hurt you so you just feel justified to say whatever the heck you want. I'm hurt. So now I shall burn down the house with my anger. I'm hurt, so I feel justified to flamethrow you with my words. Because all bets are off, civility's off, it doesn't matter. Whatever you've said to me, you've hurt me, and so now I'm going to let you have it, and I'm justified, and it's fine. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It means don't pay them back. You've got to think about God. And here's what will happen when you start thinking about God. You'll start to realize that these people that you have categorized as subhuman, which is generally what happens when you hate somebody. When you think of somebody as your enemy or you think of some category of people that you don't like, you usually are looking down on them in some way, which means you either think of yourself as God or them as not human anymore. When you're looking down on someone, you're either thinking of yourself as God, because only God can look down, or you're not thinking of them as human anymore. And if they're not human anymore, then you can just write them off. They're trash. Something stuck on the bottom of your shoe. You don't have to pay them any mind. So you've got to learn to think about God. You think, when I meet with my enemy, what I'm meeting with is the image of God. He may not have done something that I think is right. He may have done something flat out evil and wicked. But he's been made in God's image. And my calling from Jesus himself is to love him, not to hate him. To love her, not to hate her. So let's think about this for a second. Let's pretend like it's the 4th of July. And you find yourself at the TNT fireworks extravaganza in East Ridge, where I grew up. Next to the rave, which used to be the East Ridge 6th Theater. And you go in there. And you realize, oh, they're making a, a, a People of Walmart video because they ran out of Walmarts. Have you seen these videos? They're making a People of Walmart video here in this store. And there's wall-to-wall people, and the music is so loud that it's actually altering the electrical configuration of the synapses in people's brain, and suddenly you have people who under no circumstances would do this normally are spending four dollars to $500,000 on things that are going to blow their hands off. And they're excited about it. And almost no one is wearing but many clothes. And it's weird. And it's strange. And it doesn't feel like it feels at your house probably. This happened to me. Can you, I, I wouldn't just make all this up. 
And I found myself, and when I'm in situations like this, I find this at Walmart, too. When I, I get depressed every time I'm at Walmart. That's why I try not to go. I just, I, seriously, I don't know. A pall of sadness comes over me. I don't understand it. I just, I just, it's just sad. I just feel a weight of sorrows. But I ask myself in these situations, it helps me to do this. Does the gospel we believe work on these people, too? Does, are these the image of God? Like, I think I'm the image of God? Yes, yes, yes. The image of God comes in all different socioeconomic statuses, all different colors, all different shapes and sizes, all different apparel, all different ways of being. And when I remember that, I remember the Lord is the maker of the rich and the poor. That's what they have in common. Oh, it helps me. If I can think of God in those moments, I can think, anybody, I might be tempted to say, what is wrong with that person? I can say, oh, wait. That's, that's God presenting himself to me in some way. That's God's image. I'm meant to look at that person, that woman, that man, and I'm meant to say, oh, there's someone very precious to the God who lends them breath. Whether they're my tribe or not. So you've got to think of God. You've got to think you're dealing with the image of God here. Everywhere you go, you don't meet anybody who isn't. And so I'd ask you this. What, does the stuff you watch and read and listen to, say you're kind of a, you're an urban guy, you come out here to this barn to worship and you like to listen to podcasts and listen to NPR, cool. And you read, you, know, you don't read, you just listen to stuff. Does the stuff you listen to Make you feel contemptuous for like retirees who are former vets, who are Republicans, who are watching Fox News and who seem nervous and mad all the time. If so, you better stop it. You better watch out. You're nursing hate. You're not nursing love. You've got to watch it. Are you somebody who's on the other end of that spectrum? who listens to and watches things that make you walk away feeling very afraid and very angry at everybody for everything that we're losing. You hear Donald Trump saying on the border, we're going to take our country back from them immigrants. And you go, yeah. Don't go, yeah. But if you do that, you better watch out because you're nursing disdain would be far better to say in the immigration debate, you know, before I hate immigrants as a class, I might ought to know one. I bet some of them have names. I bet some immigrants who were taking over our country got a name and a mama and a daddy and maybe God made them. And so whatever else I can think about them, I can't hate them and I can't treat them like trash and I can't treat them like nothing. Or as John Perkins a man who started the Christian Community Development Association. An African-American man. I loved it when I heard him say this. this. This black man said at a gathering, he said in Mississippi, poor white trash. Ain't nobody love them. They're the, last, they're the whipping boy of everybody in America now. People that fly Confederate flags and meet in the Walmart parking lot in Fort O. Give you a Stray dog. Everybody hates them. 
and it's sanctioned. Victims become oppressors, but not in the church. I saw an ad this week, a cartoon, of someone holding a Love Wins placard, and they were bludgeoning a Christian with it, and I thought, that's good. That's right. That seems right. Because that's what happens in ordinary terms. If you just follow the normal course of things, if you're in control, you're going to try to look down on the people over whom you have control, and you're going to fight to maintain your rights and your values and your control. And if you start to lose it, you're going to hate those to whom you lose it. And if you gain control, if you've been the victim, then you're going to start holding over the others. That's the normal course of things. That's what happens in revolutions. That's what happens. That's what's happening right now in our country. But Jesus says that is not what happens in the church. He says, if you love those who love you back, how are you any different than Tony Soprano? Tony Soprano loves his kids. So you love your kids. Who cares? Do you love other people's kids? If you're white, do you love black people's kids? If you're black, do you love white people's kids? And if you only greet, if you only say, Jabella! See, Peppa, is that good? No, that's terrible. <laughs> Sorry. He can do it so much better. Shalom Aleichem! If you only say that to your brothers, Jesus said, what are you doing more than others? People that don't care about God, people who don't think about God, they all love their own tribe. This is the normal flow of things. People tend to like people of their own race, of their own socioeconomic class. That's normal. Jesus says, you're not normal. You're sons of your Father in heaven. And you know what he is? He's indiscriminate. He lets good gifts come down to evil people, wicked people, awful people. And even to the righteous as well. You've got to think about God. What am I listening to? What am I thinking of? Is it nursing hate towards other people? Derision toward other people? Or is it nursing love towards them? Sympathy towards them? Empathy towards them? And the other thing is this. You've got to think about God and you've got to pray to God. You could say that in any sermon too, but Jesus says it explicitly. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Pray for those who persecute you. These are revolutionary things. These are not... It doesn't say pray at people who persecute you. Pray for people who persecute you. In a sense, what you're doing is you're standing in their stead and doing for them what they cannot or will not be able to do for themselves. And what happens when you genuinely get in the presence of God or what should happen, when you start talking to God, hopefully you have moments like this where you realize... Where you realize, you know what? I actually expect God to answer me. Why is that? Now, if you're somebody who prays like this, God, I, I know you're not really listening. I know you're not really there. I know you don't really do this. I don't know. I'm just kind of doing this thing. Someone taught me to do it when I was in Sunday school. Well, if, you probably should just stop. Don't bother with that. That's no, God's not going to listen to that anyways. There's no faith in that. If you don't have any expectation of God doing anything, don't bother with him. But if you're somebody who prays and actually imagines that God's listening to you and he might actually do something in response to you, why do you think he would? And I realize, well, the reason I think he would is I actually start to think, you know what? I actually believe that Jesus has offered his physical body as a sacrifice for me, his enemy. He was once an enemy of his in my mind because of my evil behavior. That's what Colossians says to help me understand my experience. 
And now he has brought me near to God through his physical sacrifice so that I am without fault and free from accusation. I actually believe when I talk to God, I'm blemish-free and he's got no accusation of me. I don't have anything to defend. And so when I ask him stuff, I'm not like searching myself to make sure I'm all right. I got everything cleaned up. I just believe that he's so graciously disposed towards me that he's actually going to listen to things I ask him to do. It's audacious. But that's my read on the scriptures. Ask, seek, knock, and he who asks will be answered. He seeks, finds, knocks, the door will be open. God's like a good father. If you ask him for something, he's not going to give you a crawdad. When you ask him for some, for a hoagie, I think that's what it says. <laughs> if you believe that God listens to you because he's just favorably and graciously disposed towards you, well, you might start thinking that he might become graciously and favorably disposed towards your enemy too. It's only his action on you that's even given you the good sense to trust him. The faith that you have, that was a gift so that no one can boast. So when I stand before God, I don't stand there as someone and say, God, thank you that I have this executive style of hair and I'm so wise that I've finally chosen you. I stand there as somebody that God has acted on. I think, well, can't he act on my enemies too? Pray for those who persecute you. Pray that God might intervene in their lives. Pray that the God of this age who has blinded them, that his power might be broken and they might be able to see as you have come to be able to see. Pray that God might tamper your own heart so that you don't fill with hatred because it's a hard command depending on how much someone's let you down, so much, how someone's hurt you. It's very difficult to pray for your enemies, but it's hard to keep hating somebody that you're genuinely praying for. Because you start to see them, says Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like you, as a sinner desperately in need of grace. It all boils down to that. When you stand in prayer, you realize, I am a desperate person hoping that the kind God will be kind to me and mine. That's what my enemy needs too. He needs the mercy of God. In fact, Luke, when he says the same thing, he says, so therefore be merciful as God is mercy. You've got to think about God. You've got to pray to God. I'll close with this. When I was a little fella, I wanted so badly to be like my father. I've shared this story like 12 years ago, I think, so none of you were here. And my dad had these hands, these great tough hands. They were, they were leathery, and they, in the winter they cracked, and they would bleed. And for some reason I thought that was the coolest thing. I thought it was a sign of his virility and manhood. Cracking, bleeding hands. Like, that's what a man's hands were. And so I would get out of the shower. We didn't have central heat and air. We had these little wall heaters on the floor. And I would sit there as a little kid, and I would stick my hands up to the wall heater. Because I realized that the heat on my hands, as long as I could stand it, made them feel dried out and taut, crackly. But they never would bleed. They didn't ever look like my dad's, but I thought if I could just hold them there long enough to the heat, I could make myself like my dad. As I've grown up, my hands sometimes do that in the winter. It's not so good. But you know what I failed to realize as a little kid is I was already my dad's because I had his name, you see. And I had been adopted into his care, you see literally adopted by him, given a name, and said, I'm your father. I didn't have to make my hands like his in order to be his. 
And what Jesus is urging us to here is an aspiration of maturity for those who have already been made his. To say, you belong to your father. So you don't have to strive for the perfectionism and carrying around a shield so that you don't get blamed or ridiculed. He already is for you. He is your shield. He is with you all the time. He nourishes you. He makes the sun shine on you. He loves you even when you are an enemy. So there's no way to get away from it. Now you, believing that, grow up with the aspiration that you're going to love people like he has who may not love them back well. That you're going to be generous to people who may not be able to be generous back. You're going to be tender-hearted to people who may be mean to you and wish ill to you. That you're going to think about him when you see anyone different from you that you're going to pray to him for those who get delight in seeing you fall. Did Jesus really say to love your enemy, and pray for those who persecute you? He sure did. And he said, if you did that, you would experience what it's like to be a son or a daughter, a son or daughter that you already are by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.